Welcome to Poetry Says everyone, I'm Alice and today I'm here with Benjamin Dodds who is the author of Regulator which came out from Puncher and Watman in 2014 and if you want to find more of his work after this chat you can head to Best Australian Poems 2014 as well as Cordite, Mianjin and Tincture. Hey Ben, how are you going? I'm very well, how are you Alice? Yeah, good, good. It's very warm here. It's it's 24 and, and the Brits are panicking, there's heat wave warnings everywhere. It's, uh, yeah, it's going to be a hot one. It's a little bit cool in my little flat here in the inner west, but um, I've got two pairs of socks on and all that kind of stuff. Oh, that's good. You're in Sydney, <laughs> aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah, right. Were you, were you always based in Sydney or? I'm actually um, from the country, um, a little town in New South Wales called Leeton. Um, it's in the Riverina. You might have heard of it, possibly. It's near Griffith and Wagga. Moved to Sydney um, for uni when I was, uh, I think I was 21 when I finally decided to go to uni. And um, I've been here ever since. And now I'm very old and <laughs> I don't live in Leeton anymore. <laughs> That's right. I'm remembering now from um, reading interviews. And I think in one of the interviews you said that your first encounter with poetry was through your year three teacher. Is that right? <laughs> That's right, yeah. Uh, I had a teacher called Mrs. Podres, Mrs. P, we used to call her. And um, yeah, she set us a, a poetry challenge. I think I was in year three. And um, I wrote something that was, you know, probably pretty terrible. But at the time, she told me it was fantastic. And, um, you know, it's nice to be told that you've written something fantastic, especially when you're in year three. And um, that was that was the the start of my writing. There was a big, big pause after that, but it was the start of my writing. <laughs> that was the beginning. Yeah, well, I think if an eight-year-old's writing any poetry, that's that's pretty impressive, really. Um, and from there, you said you had a break. When did you get back into it? Well, I wrote sort of really bad teenage angsty stuff um, that I didn't really do much with, but when I moved to Sydney, I just sort of, I started reading, um, well, at uni I was reading poetry, but um, I just started to treat it a bit more seriously and um, eventually started to submit. And after a few publications, I thought, oh, I think I can do this. And I kept going. Did you study English literature at uni or did you do? Well, I'm a teacher, so I, I um, did education and I'm a Originally, I was a high school English teacher and an Italian teacher, and I now work in a primary school. That's a long story. But yeah, I did um, lots of English units when I was at uni as part of my degree. Right. Okay. I was, I was actually going to ask you about the work-life balance issue with being a teacher. My sister-in-law is a teacher and she works ridiculously hard. Um, uh -huh. I'm amazed that you can find time to write poetry let alone the amazing poetry that you do write how do you make that work at the moment I know it changes all the time I'm sure well first I must admit I don't think I work ridiculously hard a lot of teachers do um, <laughs> I, I work hard but um, I do find it hard to find time to write I've said a few times in interviews and um, you know I've, I've mentioned around the place that I just can't write during the term. I just can't. So 
I'd like to be able to and I'm trying. Every now and then I can put something together. But usually I've got to wait for the school holidays and um, I write lots and lots in the holidays. And recently I've started to try and go away, you know, um, stay somewhere quiet for a week or two and get some writing done that way. Yeah, that sounds like a good strategy. Do you think it's sort of a different way of thinking when you're writing as opposed to kind of planning lessons, getting up in front of class, that kind of thing? I I think when you're a teacher, you're always thinking about school. So (laughs) whether it's a a busy week or it's a quiet week, you're still always thinking about school. And um, I need to have a really clear head to do writing. Um, And I also need to know that if it's going to take me hours and hours, hours and hours, I've got that time to keep going. Whereas if it's say a you know a Monday night and I've got to be up in the morning ready for my lessons, um, you know I, I don't know that I'm going to have a solid chunk of time to write, so I don't even start. I think that's a, probably a really bad way of approaching it, and I should try and find a different way of looking at things and you know find a way to push through. Um, but at the moment, that's just how it is. No, I don't. I don't think there is any bad way. I've, I'm always wrestling with this question of mixing work and poetry, um, and other poets have said to me straight up, like, just whatever works for you, is okay. And also, another friend of mine said it's it's sort of like with a newborn baby. Sometimes things work, and then other things work at other times, and then you go back to the first strategy, and you're just constantly shifting and adjusting. I think. So, yeah, yeah. I, and I think you can fall into the trap of, you know, reading all of these blogs and, um, you know, you can you can try and find out how everybody else does it, but that's not necessarily how it'll work for you. Um, so it's, I suppose there's not much point feeling guilty that you do things in your way because that's the way it's got to be. Yeah, I completely agree, and I always do that. I'm always looking at, you know, historical figures and what was their routine and then feeling guilty, but it's just... It's a dead end, really. Yeah, don't go there. Yeah, don't go there. Um, So I wanted to ask about your current project that you're working on, which I know is in its beginning stages. Would you mind talking about that a little bit? Sure. So at the moment, I'm working on a project that eventually will be, I hope, a verse novel. And um, it all started with a story that I heard... uh, online years ago uh, on a program about Oklahoma University uh, and a program that they had in the late 60s that ran into the 70s um, of cross-fostering chimpanzees in human homes. So I heard about this on on a podcast and I was really fascinated and I found out that uh, one particular family that were involved in this project, uh, the father, who was a psychotherapist, he wrote um, an account of his time being the father of a chimpanzee growing up in his house with his family, with his wife, with his son. Um, it was taken from its mother at, I think, two days old and raised in their home as a human. And I just remember thinking that this was a, a horrible story, but a fascinating story, a tragic story, a funny story in parts. Um, it's wrong in every possible way, but 
I was really drawn to the story, so I've I've put together some poems based on the um, well, basically it's based on the book that was written by this man, um, Maurice Temelin, about his time with the chimpanzee in his house, Lucy the chimpanzee. Wow, that sounds like amazing subject matter to work with. It's the kind of thing. Yeah, that, it's very rich. I have to say. Yeah, yeah, unimaginable kind of practice nowadays but um yeah there must be so much so many angles from which to approach that kind of a story yeah she was a i mean lucy was a fascinating fascinating girl um Temelin calls her his daughter and i've kind of come to see her as almost a, a child a human child because of the way that he's written about her um she could make cups of tea from scratch when people came over. She learned sign language. Um, she travelled in the car with them. What else did she do? She had a pet cat. Um, all sorts of things that you probably wouldn't necessarily believe happened, but they actually did. God, that's amazing. And um, So I've written all sorts of poems about that. Some of them are, are humorous because, I mean, as, as horrible as the project was, there's some really funny stuff that, that happened, but then there's some really tragic, awful stuff as well. So it's kind of, you know, all the stuff that you can make good poetry out of. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. Well, I look forward to seeing that at some stage. But this relates a little bit to the poem that you brought to chat about today. It does, um, indeed. Yeah, I was so excited when I first read this after you sent it through. I finished it and immediately jumped back into our email thread and just said, oh, my God, I love this. It's amazing. Um, yeah, very creepy. And also, I read this while I was eating. I felt a little bit ill. So fair warning, everyone. <laughs> yeah, Put down yeah your probably breakfast. warning. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, tell us about – so this is Russell Edson – um, tell yeah, us about so who he Russell was. Edson was an American prose poet, and I have to say, I know nothing about prose poetry. All I know about prose poetry is that I used to see it and say that's not even a poem. Um, I was guilty of that. I did, but I know too. nothing about it. I don't know how to write it. I don't know really even how to read it. But I stumbled upon the work of Russell Edson, and I was just really, really besotted by it, and. I bought a heap of his books and I read them all the time and I talk about his poems to people who aren't interested in poetry and people who are interested in poetry. I just, I find him a really just, he comes up with bizarre stuff, but somehow it's perfectly bizarre. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Reading, that's a good description of this poem, I think, actually. So he's uh, a US poet, is that right? Yeah, and I found out he only died a couple of years ago. Um, so I, I heard this poem somewhere around the place maybe 10 years ago and I went out straight away and I, I bought all of his books. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I didn't – I'm I'm one of those people that doesn't necessarily read all the books about the poet's biography. I just sort of read their stuff. That's probably a bit lazy but – you know, listening to your podcast, um, you know, all of your guests have known 
the entire backstory of all of the poets that they've brought along. I know very little about Russell Edson, but I know that I like his writing. Yeah, no, don't. I wouldn't worry about that at all because the problem, the the downside of knowing so much about a particular poet is that you end up doing what I do, which is biographical readings all the time and going, where were they in their life when they wrote this, and what does it mean in terms of what they were doing, which is really beside yeah, the true. point. So I think there's a there's an upside to not going down that path. But why don't you read this poem for us now, and then we'll chat about it. Okay. So this is Ape by Russell Edson. You haven't finished your ape, said mother to father, who had monkey hair and blood on his whiskers. I've had enough monkey, cried father. You didn't eat the hands, and I went to all the trouble to make onion rings for its fingers, said mother. I'll just nibble on its forehead, and then I've had enough, said father. I stuffed its nose with garlic, just like you like it, said mother. Why don't you have the butcher cut these apes up? You lay the whole thing on the table every night, the same fractured skull, the same singed fur, like someone who died horribly. These aren't dinners, these are post-mortem dissections. Try a piece of its gum. I've stuffed its mouth with bread, said mother. Ugh, it looks like a mouthful of vomit. How can I bite into its cheek with bread spilling out of its mouth, cried father. Break one of the ears off. They're so crispy, said mother. I wish to hell you'd put underpants on these apes. Even a jockstrap, screamed father. Father, how dare you insinuate that I see the ape as anything more than simple meat, screamed mother. Well, what's with this ribbon tied in a bow when it's privates, screamed father. Are you saying that I am in love with this vicious creature? That I would submit my female opening to this brute? That after we had love on the kitchen floor, I would put him in the oven after breaking his head with a frying pan and then serve him to my husband, that my husband might eat the evidence of my infidelity? I'm just saying that I'm damn sick of ape every night, cried father. Too good. I hope everyone's still with us and feeling okay. <laughs> <laughs> it is a bit gross, isn't it? It's um, it's just amazing though. When I I got my partner to print this out for me, and he handed it to me when he got home, it's like here's your creepy poem, and we, <laughs> we were chatting about it later, and I was talking about it and saying that, describing it to someone else and saying it's this amazing poem about these these apes who are eating another ape, and then Tom, my partner, said, wait a minute, it's not apes eating an ape, it's humans eating an ape, and I was like, oh yes. I've completely misread the whole thing. Um, I'm not sure. But we are apes. <laughs> well, we are apes, good really. point. Okay, good point to start with. Um, but before I start ranting on about it, what, what's, what are some things you'd like to tell people about this poem? I just, I think the first time I heard it, I was shocked. And I was shocked because I didn't know that poetry could be as graphic and grotesque and distasteful and absurd and surreal and all those sorts of things, unsettling, disturbing. Um, you know, I knew that poetry could be edgy, but I'd never really read poetry that made me feel sick. And this one made me feel sick the first time I read it. 
and also sort of like I was a voyeur, you know, like I'm looking into, you know, into the kitchen of these, well, whoever these people are, um, you know, you sort of feel like you're, you you know, you're, you're perving on them or something. Yeah. It's really very unsettling. I was wondering about that after I finished reading it and after my stomach settled. Um, I was trying to figure out who it might be that is watching this couple. Is it a child perhaps or is it the ape itself maybe kind of a ghostly presence well, listening the in? There's no mention of any child but they call each other mother and father. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when you're a kid and, and your mum refers to your father as dad um, in front of you but there's no child there, so yeah, I, <laughs> that's another part of the unsettling nature of this poem. Mm. It's just very, very odd, but in a fantastic way. Yeah, there's there's a dailiness to it that makes what's happening that much more unsettling. I think because it's that same kind of argument that you could hear any long-term couple having. She's cooked the meal, he's complaining about it, and then it escalates into sort of these accusations. Um, so there's there's this real normality to it contrasted with this bizarre situation. <laughs> and why is he all of a sudden so sick of eating ape? If You know, you'd think if you were going to object to eating ape, it would be the first time that it's served up. Um, Good point. Not- not after you've had it served up to you night after night. I mean, I can understand that he's bored and he's sick of it, but, uh, you know, <laughs> you'd think that the first night that you had Ape put on your plate that that would be when you would be upset. Yeah, yeah, you lay the whole thing on the table every night, the same fractured skull, same singed fur, like someone who died horribly. <laughs> um, Which is exactly what it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, you know, there's a lot of, there's, because I think he writes quite surreal poetry, you don't really look for much grounding in reality. Um, You know, I mean, I don't think that this could really happen in real life, of course, God forbid. Um, But I think there's just enough realistic detail in this very unreal poem for you to take it seriously and not just to laugh at it. Yeah, and that's why when she when there's a turn, there's this escalation and she says, Father, how dare you insinuate that I see the ape as anything more than simple meat? And at this point they're screaming at each other. Before that he's it's cried father, but then it becomes mm-hmm. screamed father. Are you saying that I'm in love with this vicious creature? Yeah, you're right, because there's a grounding in reality. So you're invested in these two characters and then um, even further unsettled by the idea that the that mother is is somehow involved with this ape. I don't know. It, it mm. sounds like an admission, that last, that second last stanza. I, I think the same thing. So, 
you know, she's saying, are you saying that I'm in love with this vicious creature, that I would submit my female opening to this brute, that after we had love on the kitchen floor, I would put him in the oven after breaking his head with a frying pan and then serve him to my husband, that my husband might eat the evidence of my infidelity? Is it a backhanded admission? Yeah, there's um, too much detail in that. She shouldn't have gone. There's far too much detail, that's right. <laughs> Shouldn't have gone there. She could have just said. She could have just said, "Oh my gosh, how dare you um, suggest such a thing," and and left it there. But she went into this extremely detailed, um, you know, rant about what she might have done. When I was um, trying to find where I'd first seen this, where I'd first encountered this poem, I went online because I thought maybe I'd I'd heard it on a, I don't know, a poetry podcast, or maybe I'd read it somewhere over the years. So I was. Googling, trying to find where I might have first found it. And I couldn't work out where it was that I first saw it. Um, but I did find a video recording of Edson at a university and he was doing a reading and he read this sort of halfway through the, the whole performance. And um, everyone in the audience was laughing heartily at all of his poems because they're very silly and they're very absurd and, and you can laugh at them. And then he read Ape and they laughed all the way through it at the absurd situation of a couple eating a chimpanzee and they laughed at how grotesque it is that, you know, they're pulling bits off and eating it. And then when he got to the line about the mother submitting her female opening to this brute, the laughter just stopped. And that's when everyone started to take it to take it seriously because it's such a, a shocking thing to say. Um, yeah, it just it went from being a silly, crazy poem to something a bit dark and scary even. Um, and, and I really noticed the, the silence in the audience. Yeah, that's a tough line. And it definitely gave me pause the first time I read it. But it's interesting that Mother, the character, is she seems very much like a powerless character but then and especially in that line submit my female opening to this brute but then it's pretty clear that that she has killed the ape after that and um i don't know there's there's a sense of volition in that line too that i would submit like she is making the choice to do that i don't know Mm. yeah yeah i i agree i agree with that and the the bit where he says, why don't you put jock straps on, on these apes? Um, and then says, well, what's with the, what's with the ribbon you've tied on its, on its privates? So she's gleefully um, prettying up this horrid thing <laughs> and putting it on the table. Um, but, you know, making, you know, she's, she's definitely not trying to hide how awful the thing is you know she's even tying a bow around its private parts so it's, it's a very very strange poem that I've never quite gotten a hold on but I, I just I love it yeah I don't think it's ever gonna leave me now that I've read it once it's it's always gonna be stuck in my mind <laughs> in a good way I'm sorry no 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 it's good <laughs> um the other thing I wanted to say about the character of mother too is that when I read that second last stanza the first time I sort of wrote down that it's a little bit like a female spider or some, something like that, killing. Yeah, a male. or a praying mantis or yeah. something. Yeah. 
Yeah, amazing stuff. What do you think about the language? It's, it seems relatively plain, but... Um... It's very plain. And having read it so many times and, and having read it again just today before I spoke to you, it's not written in any, you know, there's nothing fantastic about the language. It's just the, the, the story and the picture that he builds with the language. There's lots of stuff in there that I would possibly edit out. For example, he calls it a monkey and an ape, you know, monkeys and apes are different things. Um, he's got monkey blood on his whiskers, but then later on they talk about apes. Um, also at the end when it says, uh, where is it? When she says, after breaking his head with a frying pan and then serve him to my husband, that my husband might eat the evidence of my infidelity. I don't think I would have necessarily used the word husband twice so close together. I, I get the impression that when he wrote this, he just, you know, he spat it all out in one go. I don't think it's something that he laboured over for months and months. But the the power of it is still all in there, even though it's not, even though the language isn't anything to write home about. Yeah, I, I agree. I've, I've circled all his uses of the word cried and screamed sort of as a, a note that, you know, I probably would have mixed that up a little bit too. But yeah, he doesn't, yeah. he's not particularly concerned with making some beautiful sentences. It's more about telling this story. It kind of reminds me a little bit um, as, as a teacher, um, a primary school teacher, I do read a lot of books to the kids and they always ask for Roald Dahl books. And so I gladly um, read Roald Dahl books to them because I love Roald Dahl as well. But he's remembered so fondly by everybody, but he was not a fantastic writer. The amount of times in The Witches, he says, said the boy, said the witch, said grandmother. Mm. It's all said, 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 said. And, you know, there, there's activities that you do in primary school where you write down all of the synonyms for said. <laughs> so, you know, in the morning you're reading, you're reading this very, very plain language to the kids and then later on you're talking to them about how to spice up their language. Yeah, and, and I think this is, I mean, this is not Roald Dahl, but I think... You can still love this poem and, and really enjoy how horrid it is. But also you can, you know, if you look at it very closely, you can see that it's very plain language and, and you know, I, I don't think it's the, the finest um, poetry that's ever been written. So if you had to make a case for Ape as a poem rather than a short story, what would you say to them? I, yeah, okay, so I, I definitely do think this is a poem. I mean, I suppose as, as a prose poem, the line endings and the line breaks aren't so important. Um, I had a look at versions of this online, and at first I was thinking, gee, all the line endings are, are very different from version to version, and then I thought, oh, stupid Ben, of course they are, um, because Edson wouldn't have worried about line endings when he wrote this. But it's the imagery, it's the it's the really extreme um, imagery and emotion and just how gross it is. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's the intensity of emotion that comes from reading this really brief 
you know, sample of language that for me makes it a poem. I don't think it's a short story because it doesn't go anywhere. Um, but but it's definitely a poem. Yeah, it's prose poetry is funny like that. It's um, it's tough to describe exactly what makes it work and, and how it functions, but you sort of know it when you see it, I suppose. Yeah, and as I said before, I know nothing about prose poetry, so there's probably people out there who are experts on prose poetry screaming, saying, what are you talking about? But, <laughs> yeah, um... please, come and, please <laughs> come and talk to us. We, we want to know the answers. I tried to write my first prose poem this year, and uh, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. Yeah, I'm... Uh, well, I used to be part of a, a writing group that would meet on a Wednesday evening and everybody would bring their poems and, um, you know, we'd hand out a copy to everybody and read them around the table. And the guy that led the group used to always, whenever he didn't like something, he'd go, I think maybe this is a prose poem. Ooh. So I've kind of tried to <laughs> try to stay away from prose poetry uh, because of because of his probably unfair comment. Um but yeah, this is this is definitely a poem. It's definitely a poem. I think it's a, a very it's a very full on poem. Well, I hope we've won over a few people to its side. We may have alienated a few people. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> um, well, if you don't like this one, he's got lots of other poems about apes. There's one called Ape and Coffee. Um, he likes his apes and his monkeys. And now it sounds like I do too because that's what my next project is that I'm working on. But I do write about other stuff. I'm not just the ape guy. Yeah, no, I, I wanted to to um, ask you more about your other work as well. I um, You kindly sent me the manuscript of Regulator, um, which I read all in one go because I couldn't stop reading it. I just, it was so, so fun to read. Um, oh, that's really lovely to hear. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I particularly liked the the first and last section. So it's in four sections. Um, there's great poems in each of the sections, but the first section deals with where you grew up, and I absolutely love the way that you are doing descriptions of the Australian landscape that capture the dread and the danger within it as well as the beauty there's lines like um galaza chewing the eucalyptus tops to dead fingers raking the sky i was just like ah oh, done that's done perfect description <laughs> moving on well everybody's got a got a galah poem but that's that's my one yeah um yeah i well growing up in the country i suppose i had all of that stuff to kind of get out of my system when i started writing um I don't write very much rural or, or um, pastoral stuff these days. But, yeah, there had to at least be part of my first collection of poetry that included country poems. Yeah, and then from there that there's um, a section that looks at themes of space and things like watching the moon landing or not watching the moon landing, as the case may be. Um, and something that you mentioned I think in an in an interview which is the idea of ethically troubling scientific breakthroughs which I think is is really interesting territory for poetry to go into mm, which is you know that definitely ties into the the verse novel that I hope one day will be finished yeah I think that's I think it's such such rich territory first collections are well not 
in every case, but you know, they, they're often a bit of a lucky dip. Um, you know, you've got pretty much every poem you've ever written up until a certain point and they're about all different things and they're, you know, they take different forms and they're in different styles and they have different tones. I, I think there is a thread that kind of runs through all of it. I'm not exactly sure what that thread is, but my, my, that's, that's why I'm, I'm quite happy that my, my next book will be all about one topic. It will be, you know, the story of Lucy the ape instead of lots and lots of different poems about all sorts of interesting miscellaneous things. Yeah, I mean, I I really thought that one of its biggest strengths was the fact that it's about lots of different subjects, but it definitely has a coherent theme. And, and like you, I don't know if I can put that into words, but there's something about each of the poems that they kind of speak to each other and, and there's a line running through them all. Could we hear a poem from you, one of your own poems? Sure, certainly. Uh, maybe I'll read something that's a bit newer. So this isn't in... Regulator. This poem was published in an issue of Cordite at the end of last year. I think it was the end of last year. Surrogacy. It is the stork who labours to deliver baby Dumbo to his sad and silent single mother. The heft of a hundred kilo sack had to be held aloft across the technicolour map of Disney's pre-war USA in search of a moving target, a humping caterpillar of travelling circus train. Only a domestic flight, but imagine the sweet relief at unlocking his beak, the tension headache born of bearing an elephant child. He does his job with a smile, offers genuine warmth in generous addition to the contractual requirement of professionalism, congratulates the long-lashed lady and relaunches on monochrome wings. His total screen time is maybe three minutes. A seasoned bit player, agent of plot progression, class act who only weeps in transit. Oh, you say it's lighter, but that last line kills me. That's that's really well. It's, a, sad. it's about a Disney, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think this is great. This is something that I think you you do incredibly well, which is. You give a voice to the minor players, you make them major, you give voice to their triumphs and their losses and little things like tension, headache, born of bearing an elephant child. I mean, you've never thought about what a stork goes through, the, the mythical stork. But yeah, you've given voice to it here. Oh, thanks. That's a nice reading of it. Can you tell us a little bit about the writing of this poem, what, what went into it and, and where it came from, things like that? Well, I just watched Dumbo again not that long ago. <laughs> I'm a big, big Disney fan. Um, and I just thought about how odd it is that storks, you know, <laughs> mythically were supposed to have brought babies. Um, and, you know, the joke in Dumbo is that the stork has to carry this huge, heavy, heavy elephant and drop it off to the mother. But it made me think of modern-day surrogacy and you read in the news about people who, um, you know, take the, the huge step of carrying someone else's child and then handing it back over at the end of the pregnancy. I can't imagine how, how hard that would be. Um, 
and I just thought it would be interesting to see, you know, how that would how that would work in the cartoon world with the stork flying away after having given Dumbo to his mum. You know, he put some work in there too. It's it's so great. It's like you're looking at, and it's it's true of your other poems as well. There's one that I loved that I think was in Mianjin called the International Prototype, and that's about this, um, the kind of what's the word the canonical kilogram, like the kilogram that all other mm. kilograms are measured against. And that was like, almost the one that I read, but I decided to do this one instead. Yeah, that's a great one too. But they're both looking at the world from this skewed, off-centre perspective. There's things that you've already seen, like Dumbo, or you know what a kilo is, but you've never thought about it from, from this angle before. So, Well, that, that poem that was in Mianjin is now almost obsolete because I was reading the other day in um, New Scientist that they've found a new, more accurate way of um, determining the archetypal kilogram. So the poor old Grand K that's in some darkened Paris vault somewhere won't be the standard kilogram anymore. Oh, wow. Oh, it's good that you've uh, you've given it space in the poem there to continue existing then. That's good. Yeah, it got published before that happened. But <laughs> Right. <laughs> so I had a couple of other questions for you before we finish up and one of them was I was wondering about um, I was wondering about your friendships with other poets as I I think I read that you are friends with some other Sydney poets and I was wondering how that works for you how important it is in terms of your writing and things like that well it's it's really important to be able to bounce your stuff off other people and also to provide that service for for friends as well um, I don't know so many Sydney poets. Um, I've become friends with Carol Jenkins, who is a Sydney poet. Um, she launched my book and we've caught up a few times and we see each other at launches and stuff and she's a really lovely lady. Um, but I'd say probably the poet that I am better friends with than any other poets would be um, Stuart Barnes, who you had on a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Who's launching his book, um, The Glass Houses, at the Queensland Poetry Festival this weekend, actually. Yeah, so we send each other poems and um, we were talking about it the other day. We have very different styles. I mean, I couldn't write anything like he writes and he doesn't write anything that looks like what I write. But somehow we just get, we get, you know, we get it. We understand one another's writing and so we provide feedback and, um, you know, tell each other when it is and isn't working. I think that's very important because you can get really caught up in your own head and say, this is fantastic. And then you show it to someone else and they say, this is garbage. Um, or the other way around, you might think something's terrible and, um, you know, when it's time to unveil it, well, you wouldn't unveil it if it was terrible. But, you know, when, when you do share it with someone else, they say, oh, this is really good. Um, so you can't tell. You really can't tell. You, you become way too close to your own stuff. So you need someone else to have a look at your work as well. Yeah, having somebody who will say respectfully that something's not working is so valuable. But, yeah, you're right. Also, somebody that will rescue something that you're about to throw away, that's, that's pretty great too. Yeah, it's happened a couple of times. Yeah. 
Um, as a complete detour from the type of poetry we've been talking about so far, I read in an interview that you did with Tincture um, at the end when they asked about some of your favourite poets, you said at the end, don't yell at me for this, but Billy Collins is one of my favourite poets. And <laughs> I really wanted to ask you about that because I love Billy Collins as well, but I, I feel the same hesitation that you do. I have no idea where it comes from. It's as if there's been some some embedded knowledge that we're not meant to like Billy Collins and just, just be quiet about it. Have you ever admitted this openly before? <laughs> no. <laughs> not in such a public forum. It's out there. This is the thing. I think he's a great poet. I mean, he's not... You can't write... I, mean, I don't think you can write um, essays about how deep his poetry is or, you know... It, it's not like there are hidden meanings in his poems, but I find them really satisfying to read. The, the amount of times I've read something that he's written and thought, wow, that's a great way to put that, or, you know, I've been through that, or... But, you know, he, he really just is a solid poet, but you're not allowed to say that for some reason. Yeah, and I don't know why... That is. Uh, maybe it's because it's a little bit like the Mary Oliver problem. A lot of my friends love Mary Oliver and I do too. Um, but she is so popular. Um, maybe that's it. Maybe it's that, yeah, there's not a huge amount of depth there. I don't, I don't really know. Maybe it's the same as the Coldplay problem, oh, you know. Um, <laughs> so many people like Coldplay but they don't admit it because they might be, you know, it's very... It's very unpopular to, well, actually, it's very populist to like Coldplay, but it's not really the hip thing to like Coldplay. I don't like Coldplay that much, by the way, but <laughs> I'm just using that as an example. <laughs> I don't mind a bit of Coldplay every now and then. I'll, I'll go there for sure. Um, I was reading another poet recently, Ted, Ted Cusa, who oh, yeah. um, Billy Collins and Ted Cusa were, were both Poet Laureate at one point. Um, but I was reading something about um, Ted and he was described in the same way. He's very accessible, um, but he's not seen as, you know, he's, he's kind of dismissed as a more popular poet. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't read his stuff if, if you're a poet yourself, you know. I think you should read everything. Yeah, I completely agree with that, completely agree. Speaking of music, we can't finish this discussion without addressing Tori Amos. <laughs> <laughs> now, anyone who is uh, who wants to tap out now, feel free. We're about to talk about Tori. But, but I read in your Twitter bio that you were a Tori Amos fan and that was one of the reasons that I felt like I could just front up and, and approach you to be on the program because um, I'm a massive Tory fan as well. <laughs> See, it opens doors. It opens doors. It just, it's a great leveller. So tell us your Tory story. When did you first get into her and, and um, all that kind of thing? Uh, I am a Tory fanatic from way back. Um, in fact, she was sort of the first proper music that I listened to. I remember my mum bought Little Earthquakes um, and... I fell in love with just listening to, you know, the CD that my mum was playing in the house and I stole it and hid it and then it was mine. Um, and after that I was just absolutely obsessed with Tori Amos. I have everything she's ever released, all the bootlegs, all the singles. I've been to all of her Australian concerts. 
Um, it's a little bit unhealthy, but I'm a huge fan. She demands what it about though. You? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely approaching that. Um, I've been to a lot of her concerts and spent a great deal of time reading and learning about her. And I feel like I learned a lot. And money, a great deal of money. I and money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think I learned a lot from reading about how she approaches writing music. Mm. Um, just in terms of, you know, the way she kind of spends a lot of time sucking up outside influences and then seals herself off and writes an album, but also just the way that she experiments a lot and tries not to let yeah. people tell her what she should be making next. Um, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm, look, I'm, I'm always a big fan Tori, but I, I'm not a huge, huge lover of her newer stuff. Same. Um, but my gosh, when I was an adolescent, she was my life. And, you know, I thought that every song she ever wrote was the soundtrack to, to my existence. Completely. I don't think I would have made it through the last two years of high school <laughs> without that stuff. But, yeah, I think there's, I don't know, there's something to be really respected about just making your own thing consistently year after year and yeah even us long-term fans are sort of looking at her now going oh, I don't really know what you're doing but she's she's just doing it she's just making yeah. stuff and good on her good on her <laughs> <laughs> cool well I better let you go but it was so lovely to talk to you Benjamin thank you so much it's been good fun Thanks so much for listening, everyone. You can chat to me on Twitter at Poetry Says, and you can find more episodes at PoetrySays.com. And as always, if you want to come and chat about your favourite poem, whether you're a poet or not, get in touch. 